Good. Well, whoever chose that video, which I, I'm familiar with, I must accuse you of hacking my computer and reading my notes. <laughs> that was extraordinarily fitting. Uh, first of all, uh, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here. Um, but the early part of when we started, you know, it was, there were not many people here. Now there's quite a few. That's very, very good. Um, just to say, I'm going to continue with my Bible reading plan. I've made 10 copies of that, which are outside in the foyer. If you want to go through Kingdom by Covenant, Old Testament and New Testament, read through together through the whole year. There's 10 envelopes out there. There's also down here some copies of notes from what I'm about to say, because I know that when I preach, I raise as many questions as I give answers. So <laughs> that's to help anybody who wants some more. All right. Thank you, too, for your words to, to Carol and I. Uh, Carol's father, of course, passed away 17th of December. We came to the Carol service in the evening just having heard that, and we were away for the weekend last weekend with our whole family. We are going to Jamaica for the funeral on, fri on Friday the 12th of this month, uh, which is an unexpected extra journey in these times. But, uh, so thank you all for your, your greetings, your condolences on that score as well. Next Sunday morning, I won't be here because Epping have asked me to switch. I was to be there on the 14th of January, but they've asked me to go on the 7th, so I'll be there. Carol will be here, but I'll be there next Sunday. All right. Let's pray, shall we? Get into these scriptures together. Holy Spirit, please come to us and help us this morning. Energize our thoughts, our minds, our hearts, so that we will be led to a greater focus of faith and obedience to our Lord Jesus. Help me to speak. Help us all to listen, to comprehend, to process, and to respond. In Jesus' name, for his honor, we pray. Amen. Amen. On the last day of 2023, I want to ask this question, what lies ahead? I'm not about to make all sorts of prophetic predictions. That's not my style. But what may we expect in the coming year and years? I'm not talking about British or worldwide politics particularly, or economics or climate change, because there's an even bigger picture than those that the children of God should be seeing. What happens from now onwards in the advancing kingdom of God's Son? What can we expect to see? When will he return? I'm not answering that. <laughs> Let me say clearly, I'm not predicting the Lord's return in the coming year, or placing any date or time on that. I learned a long time ago not to follow that kind of foolishness. Jesus said, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, he wasn't there talking about the events that were going to take place in Jerusalem in the 80s, 60s. He's talking about his appearing, the day of his appearing. No one knows the day of his appearing. People claim that by discerning the signs of the times, they can predict the day. My understanding of the words of the Lord Jesus is that in the Oliver Discourse, Matthew 23 to 25, Mark 13, Luke 21, is that he gives signs of what was going to happen in that generation. AD 60s finishing in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But he gives no signs. He emphasizes, he gives no signs that predict his appearing. And by the way, the people who are always checking signs, they've come and gone and come and gone in my lifetime. And I'm getting old, but they do. They just do, all right? When some prophets predict these things and they get it wrong, do you know what they do? They just give you an update. Unashamedly. Oh, no, it's going to be so-and-so. No. Not, I got it wrong. Sorry. 
according to the Lord Jesus, we can't know the day or hour. So don't pay attention to those who claim to do so. By the way, let me say something about the year 2030. Do you remember there was a big fuss about AD 2000? People said, oh, it's 2000 years from Jesus being born. By the way, that's wrong anyway. Jesus was born in BC 4 or BC 6, not in AD 0. But never mind. Some people in AD 2000 literally stood up on hillsides all night waiting for Jesus to come. Do you know that? They did. That's how crazy we can get about these things. Now, I'm predicting AD 2030 will be a year of fuss. I'm having nothing to do with it. But it will be 2,000 years since Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead in AD 30. So, or by general opinion. So expect a lot of fuss about AD 30, but please don't sign up to the Mad Brigade. <laughs> so until the last day actually arrives without pre-announcement, what lies ahead? Some people would prophesy glory. Some would prophesy gloom. Well, what about both? Here's a scripture I want you to take away from this morning. Isaiah 60. This is referred to a number of times in the New Testament. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. For behold, darkness covers the earth. Thick darkness is over the peoples. This is the nations in, in view here. But the Lord rises upon you. And his glory will appear to you, over you, sorry. Nations will therefore come to your light, which is, of course, the light of the Lord in us. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Can you see that both happen together there? The light increases, the darkness gets deeper. Now, those words in Isaiah 60, of course, are Link back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. It was deep darkness. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And the light was separated from the darkness. Also refers again to the words of John 1. John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. That life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. Jesus came into a dark world as the light of the world. And the darkness could not overcome or overthrow it. The universe now is full at the same time with light and with darkness. Light is everywhere, traveling everywhere, but so is darkness everywhere. You don't look up into the light sky. Now, let's think about the kingdom of God and of his Christ, the Messiah. We need to understand something about that. It's not a future kingdom. It's happening now. It's started. It's growing and advancing and will be completed when the Lord Jesus returns. That is what is taught in 1 Corinthians 15. Excuse me if we read through this together. 1 Corinthians 15 is a chapter about the resurrection of the dead. We will all be raised from the dead by Jesus. There's no amen there. He's the firstborn, the first fruits of the resurrection. Where he's gone, so will we. If we've entered the grave, doesn't matter. If we never see the grave, doesn't matter. We will be, if not resurrected, then gloriously changed when we see him. 
So this is in, into the bottom end of that chapter. Verse 20. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his turn. Christ the first fruits. It's not Christ, comma, then something else called the first fruits. He's the first fruits. Then at his coming those who belong to him. Right? Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put everything under his feet. That's Psalm 8 verse 6. Now when it says that everything's been put under him, that clearly does not include the Father, the one who put everything under him. But when all things have been subjected to him, to Christ, the Son himself will be made subject to him, the Father who put all things under him so that God may be all in all. In other words, Jesus returns a completed kingdom back to the hands of the Father. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God had come. It was there. It was happening. The Jewish expectations of the the, the, the kingdom of Messiah was that the Judean nation would overthrow the Roman oppressors and that Yahweh would reign over them in a restored kingdom from Jerusalem through his son of David. But the Lord Jesus told them again and again that was not the program of the kingdom of God. Read through the Gospels and we find in his own words how he explains again and again about the kingdom of God. We'll come to those, some of those in a minute. After the Lord Jesus returned to the Father, ascended to the Father, the Holy Spirit continued to teach the followers of Jesus through the apostles and prophets that this kingdom of Messiah was not as had been popularly expected, but would continue in a dark world until the end of the age. The phrase, the last days, is often used. The biblical definition of the last days is in fact the time between the first coming of Jesus and his second coming. The rabbis perfectly well understood that. That's what the last days mean. So most of the things you see on the internet about the last days, which are focusing on some time beyond, beyond, beyond our time now, are fundamentally getting it wrong. Yeah. It's a phrase that is equal to the kingdom of Jesus Messiah. That's what the rabbis understood. That's what the early church understood. The new covenant was formed in the... Last days, thank you. The Holy Spirit was poured out in the last days. You got it. The apostles and prophets in the early years of the church were given further insights into aspects of the last days, and those insights were shared with the believers through the epistles and so on. And they warned that some things which, you know, were, were bad news, difficult news in some ways, were nevertheless part of what to expect in the last days. Terrible times will come in the last days. Even though it's the kingdom of Jesus, there's stuff going to happen. I've given you some scriptures if you're interested. When you read a scripture that speaks of the last days or makes any prophetic statement, I want, I want to give you this word picture here. The Holy Spirit did not do this. He did not put that scripture in a time capsule, bury it, and for, for people could pick it out in the 20th or the 21st century. Scripture was written to them then. It had an immediate understanding and application. And it has had a meaning and application to every generation of believers since then. We are not the best generation who get all the answers. Right? God in his wisdom has made his word applicable to every generation of believers. 
Every believer since Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the Father has been living in the kingdom of Jesus Messiah, that is, the last days. So what lies ahead between now and the Lord's return? Well, first of all, contrast. Back to Isaiah 60 for a moment. Contrast. Right? For those who are the Lord's, light. For those who are not, darkness. A darkness that perhaps even deepens. And note this, the light for the believers should be increasing. Get up, wake up. The light of God has come to you. It's time to arise. It's time to get up. Paul quotes that in Ephesians. This theme of light and darkness is often repeated throughout the Old Testament. Through, through the epistles, rather. The prophet Isaiah does not say that darkness will be destroyed, but the light will overcome it. The light will invade it. You cannot avoid the light. No matter how dark a place you choose, the light still finds you. We've been fed the idea that the mission of God and of Christ, the, the church in this age of the kingdom of Jesus, is to somehow overthrow all the darkness and evil in this world and make it all right. I don't think that's true. We are to resist evil, yes. We are to declare God's righteousness to a lawless world, yes. We're to be examples of those who live, not by the standards of this world, but by God's. Yes. We're to care for the oppressed and resist oppressors. Yes. But to throw down all ungodly authorities and establish some sort of Christendom. Let me tell you something. If you read English, European, and American history, we already tried, and it didn't work. You cannot subject godless people to godly rule, and somehow that makes them godly. Doesn't happen. That's not how the kingdom of Christ works. In Matthew 13, there are a series of parables in which Jesus defines as the mysteries of the kingdom. Let me just mention them to you. The parable of the sower, the seed, and the soils. That's my title for it, because it's not just the sower, it's not just the seed, it's also about the soil. Then he explains that. The parable of the weeds, which he later explains. The parable of the mustard seed, which is one little seed that grows in a big tree and then birds of the air come and rest, roost in it. And the parable of the yeast, or leaven, mixed into uh, flour. Then there's the parable of the treasure and the pearl, which are a little bit different. And then there's the, treasure, uh, the parable of the net. One net is thrown into the sea and picks up fish, good and bad, which are then sorted out. Now, in most of those parables, there is some darkness and evil at work, which is why they are mysteries of the kingdom. The stuff there we don't want to negotiate. We think, really? Ooh. In the sower, Satan takes away the seed of the gospel from some people. Really? Yes. In the weeds, an enemy sows weeds amongst the harvest of the Lord's field. And the servants say, should we take the weeds out? No, 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 you'll damage the grain. The grain's far more important. Leave it until the day of harvest, and then the grain will be gathered home and we'll burn the weeds. But who planted the weeds? The master says, an enemy did this. In the mustard seed, the birds of the air roost in the full-grown tree of the kingdom. Now, birds of the air, we go, oh, nice little birdies. The Bible doesn't treat birds of the air in that way. We're thinking of carrion crows and things like that, things that eat on dead meat, roadkill, stuff that other people have thrown out of their houses. The birds of the air roosting is not a good picture. 
It's saying evil is at work even within the kingdom of God. In the net, good and bad fish. The two that are different, the treasure and the pearl. The treasure, the man sees treasure in the field, goes away, sells everything he's got to buy that land because he wants that treasure. The pearl, a man sees a pearl, which is like, wow, that's the biggest, best pearl I've ever seen in my life. Again, sells everything he has to get it. What is the picture there? The treasure of the kingdom of God is in this world, but when you find it, you've got to go for it. Sell everything you have to find Christ in his kingdom. Because it isn't public, it isn't out there. Jesus doesn't walk around saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. You've got to seek him. And it's a treasure. And when you find the treasure, don't let anything stop you taking hold of that treasure. Sell it, smash it, destroy it, whatever stands in your way. These parables taken together teach us that the kingdom of God does not overthrow all evil in this age. But the kingdom of God advances and grows until the reign of Jesus is completed and his mission is fulfilled. But at the same time, evil continues to grow. Wheat and tares grow to maturity. Only at the end of the age, note that at the end of the age, are the weeds taken away from the good wet grain, the bad fish sorted out from the good, and then the righteous shine in the perfected kingdom of their father. So what lies ahead? Contrast. In fact, increased contrast. For the people of God, the children of God, we should learn and be growing to live more and more in the light of God. But that doesn't mean the world is suddenly going to get all full of light. Darkness is still there. And it may even deepen. But I must also say this. Continuity. Let me read this scripture. Or normality. This is what we're talking about now. Continuity or normality. Jesus said this. Matthew 24. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Okay, we've already looked at that. Let's look at the rest of this context. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they were oblivious until the flood came and swept them all away. So will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now I remember being a boy and a young man, hearing some preachers, good men, but they completely misunderstood the scripture. And they stand up and they denounce, these people were gluttons and drunkards and were sexually immoral and divorcing and things. That doesn't say that at all. This was normal life, people. They were marrying and giving in marriage and eating and drinking. The word drinking there doesn't necessarily mean drunkenness. It's just the general word for drinking. The Lord Jesus wasn't pointing out how evil that generation was. We know that from Genesis 6. Jesus is saying, the normal life continued right up until suddenly the waters, the waters were hitting you. The flood came. People will be getting married on the day that Jesus returns. People will be sitting down to a dinner. People will be sitting and having a conversation in a cafe. Suddenly, it's the end. This is about normality. And for us, too, as Christians, we don't quit our jobs because we have an idea that Jesus is going to come, come again on Sunday. <laughs> or tomorrow. We get on with normal life, but we do so seeking to honour him through our normal lives, doing whatever we do for the glory of God, and with an eye to the fact that this will not last. This will have an end. 
So we asked, even though living a normal life and enjoying normal family life and conversations and friendships and so on, we know that Jesus will come and this age will end. And when we live with those two things, doing, living it, living as for the glory of God, knowing that this is not the end, but the end will come, then we're prepared for that day. We're not ignorant about it. Thirdly, I've got to say a bit about this. What happens in the world around us? Confusion, corruption, conflict, and even collapse. I believe that the Lord is in some ways judging our nations. Our political and governmental systems are failing. There's corruption, conflict, hatred, and tribalism. And I'm not talking about somewhere other like Africa or somewhere in terms of tribalism. America is tribal right now. America almost came to civil war a few years ago and may do so again. In this chaos, strong men like Nimrod in the Old Testament come to power. Dictators such as Putin in Russia. To name just one, because if I name more, you'll disagree with me. Many so-called democracies are in fact becoming presidential dictatorships. And the far right is gaining power in many places around the world, just as it did around 100 years ago. That bred two world wars. Nations are being shaken. Or to put another biblical analogy, the darkness is getting darker. If that is so, what is our response? Rise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. Darkness covers the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory will appear over you, and you then become light to the unbelieving, to the nations. Whoever sits on the throne of a nation or is named the president or the prime minister, our confident declaration is this. Jesus is Lord. The government of Carol and I and our household doesn't depend upon who's in number 10 or who's in Windsor Castle. Our Lord Jesus reigns over us. <laughs> nice amen from Miranda. Well done, Miranda. Let me give you the, I didn't know when to put this one in, it's on my notes, but remember the Old Testament, children of Israel in captivity, they're in slavery, and God begins to pour out judgments upon Egypt. One of them was thick, thick darkness covered the land for, was it three days? I think so, three days, yeah. Usually he's up here and I'm answering them. <laughs> um, Egypt covered with darkness, but in the place where the people of Israel were, which was Goshen, their houses, their households, were full of light. How was that? They'd, made, they'd reserve candles and things? No. God was there with them. You can have a household, a family, a community, filled with light, even though the world is dark. If God is there. If God is there. Whoever sits on other thrones, Jesus sits on the throne of heaven. And the government of the church, his people, rests upon his shoulders, Isaiah 6. He is our protector. He's our provider. 
We place no confidence in human authorities. Our trust is in the Lord. But let's think about this more directly as it affects us as Christians. Conflict and compromise. I want to think about conflict as it affects us. Here's therefore a prediction I will make. In the times ahead, we will be increasingly pressured to conform to and to compromise with the unbelieving world. Increasing pressure. Now I'm going to be very daring here. I'm going to explain the mark of the beast to you. (laughs) I must be crazy. (laughs) Revelation 13. The second beast required all people, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, the name of the beast or the number of its name. And then John gives us the number. Here is the call for wisdom. Let the one who has insight calculate the number of the beast for his number of a man, and that number is 666. Some early versions have 616, and I'm not going to tell you why. Revelation repeatedly and heavily draws upon Old Testament scriptures and analogies and prophecies, and this is no exception. What is this mark on the forehead and on the hand to do with? It's this. Defilin. Phylacteries. Twice in Deuteronomy, the Lord tells the Israelites they are to keep and obey the words of the Lord, and they are to tie them as reminders on your hands and bind them on your foreheads, as well as writing them on your houses and on your gates and speaking of them with your children, and so on. Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11. The head or forehead is an image of the heart and mind, our thoughts and attitudes. The hand represents our actions. And there could be another one, but you're being practical. If you bound it upon your lips, you need to be doing that, wouldn't it? If you bound, upon, if you bound it upon your lips, but it includes your speech. To this day, Orthodox Jewish men bind phylacteries, small leather boxes containing verses of scripture, attached to long thongs to their forehead and their hands every morning at morning prayer. And that is what Revelation 13 draws upon. Godless authorities commanding you what to think, what to say, and what to do. Contrary to God's word. That happened in the 1860s under the person whose name adds up to 666, Caesar Nero. Revelation was preparing believers for then as the pressure of this Roman emperor to accept his word and to honor him in worship rather than the Lord. If you would not conform to the pressure of Rome, the command of Rome, you could lose your citizenship, your livelihood, be unable to trade to earn, you might even lose your life. In my notes I've explained 666. This demand of the Roman emperor to conform, to call Caesar Lord and to make a ritual offering, they called the reasonable worship. This is what a citizen does. Revelation 12 says that to honour and love and serve the Lord Christ is our reasonable worship. We, don't, we will not bow to the reasonable worship demanded of us by godless authorities. We give our reasonable spiritual, if you like, but it's not what the Bible says is reasonable, service or worship to God and Christ alone. We will obey the Lord rather than men. So I would say the Revelation 13 was fulfilled literally in the 1860s, but the pattern of that sort of thing happening has happened again and again throughout the centuries. 
Godless authorities demand we think and behave as they direct. The children of God can't do that. We can't make that compromise. Better to lose livelihood or even life itself. We're under pressure to accept the attitudes and behavior of this godless world. Right now, some Christians who resist that compromise and choose to obey the Lord are losing their jobs. And I can only expect that that pressure will continue. And that pressure will also begin to affect Christian charities. If we do not accept what we're told and practice what we're told, we'll probably have to lose our charitable status. But I believe it would be an honourable thing to do so, rather than submit our heads and our hands to godless authority. So we don't literally bind to fill in declaratories, but we are bound to the word of God. We cannot do something contrary to God's word. Then, of course, Revelation 20 talks about a final conflict as well. Revelation 20 speaks, of course, of a thousand-year reign, a millennium. Since the early centuries of the church, AD 200, 300, that kind of time, there's been a debate about whether that refers to a future period of time after the Lord's return or to this age, the time between the coming of Jesus, first coming of Jesus and his return. I take the latter view. I may have grown up doing that because the first pastor I really knew when I was growing up was an Elim man who was working outside of the Elim at the time, and he was of that second view, which is called post-millennialism. So I probably grew into that, being honest. But however you understand the millennium, Revelation 20 is more about the end of the millennium than the millennium itself. It's more about what happens at the end of that time. And at the end of that time, Satan is released from some age-long restrictions and sets about deceiving the nations into a ridiculous rebellion against the Most High. I mean, it's, it's foolhardy to say the least. Now, I don't accept the theories of a future seven-year tribulation, I believe that happened in the 1860s, or a secret rapture even. Both of those theories, by the way, were brought in in the early 1800s and were part of the new system formed then of dispensationalism. They were unheard of for, 1800, for 18 centuries. They were brought about. I was going to say the word invented. I, I would say that. I mean that. But there will clearly be a period of great conflict at the end of this age, whatever that age means. Righteousness and wickedness, the godly and ungodly, grow alongside each other until the last day. They both come to fullness, maturity. That's what the Lord's parables in Matthew 13 tell us. Revelation prepares us for really a huge final showdown. So, since that's how I see Revelation 20, I've got to be prepared for an increased time of final showdown, according to my view. If you think of Revelation 20 in a different way, you've still also got to negotiate that thing of final conflict, final shadow. Brings us to our last three points. We as Christians are not looking for the lack collapse of all things. That may happen. But the completion of all things will be read in 1 Corinthians 15. The bringing together of everything under the rule of the Lord Jesus so he returns a completed kingdom back to the Father. We will not see heaven on earth until after he comes. It will not become all right and all good this side of that last day. But as the gospel goes to every nation and the Lord's children are gathered to him, the world will come to its end and he will come in glory, raise the dead, judge the world and bring in the eternal, uncorrupted kingdom of God and the Lamb. Heaven and earth will become one 
in a new and renewed creation, as it was at the beginning, God walking amongst men. Well, two of them at the time. And the children of God will live in the glorious presence of their Father. We are looking for the consummation, the completion. When we pray, your kingdom come, I'm not, I'm not thinking of a future millennium. I'm praying for Christ to complete his kingdom. Please, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. That's the prayer at the end of Revelation. Even so, even so, even though it's going to be all sorts of stuff on the, on the way, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Yes, even though there's trouble between now and then, come, Lord Jesus. Yes. Yes. We are looking and hungering to see this done, this completed. The reign of Jesus being fulfilled. And then we see his face. Eager, longing for that day. The second of these three points is this. In these times, what lies ahead is this. Our unchanging Christ. The Lord Jesus sent his disciples into the world, told them that they would be oppressed and persecuted, yet they, would be, they began the program of bringing the gospel to the nations, to the ends of the earth, and to the ends of the age. Notice his promise. The great commission of Jesus comes with a great promise. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. He is not going to quit on us, is he? He's not going to go away from us either. He promises his presence continually through everything that happens until the, this age ends. The I am, Yahweh, became flesh. The God who was and is to, is to come became the Almighty, the Eternal One, in and through Jesus Christ. Paul, writing to the Hebrews, says that the example and evidence of every, any Christian leader worth listening to and following is simply this. This is the, the sum of our lives and of our work. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's the context of it. Christian leaders, that's what we're saying to you. That's what it adds up to. And if our lives aren't, aren't displaying it, please tell us. Jesus is never going to change. Because he's really the eternal one. And in all that lies ahead, increased conflict and contrast, the pressure to compromise, confusion in and even the collapse of human society. Bear in mind, some human societies have collapsed. That's what all the refugee thing is about. Some societies have collapsed. We are so blinkered in our thinking about Britain and England. But our Lord will not change. He's immutable, unchangeable. Time changes us. Boy, do I know about that. But it does not change him. He's the eternal one. Risen from the dead, ascended to and glorified with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. Our Lord Jesus Christ does not change but remains the same for us. And his promises do not change. And his word doesn't change, which is why we can't change what he says. We can't change what we're going to obey and not obey. Because it says that is every bit as important as his precious promises to us. Lastly, what will not change is his covenant faithfulness. God is not making up his mind how he feels about you. Can I say that again? God is not deciding how he feels about you, how he's going to act towards you. He has sealed that into a covenant 
which was forged in the body and blood of Jesus at Golgotha. His, <coughs> I'm going to get stuck in a moment. His covenant is unchangeable. It will not be changed. Because we are in Christ, we belong to him in such closeness that the scriptures calls us members of his body. We are participants in a new covenant that was made and sealed by his body and blood. That covenant is unchangeable. It's eternal. He will keep his promises. He will not fail us. He will not forsake us because he's promised not to do so by an oath. He's sworn by himself. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. He's the faithful one. Lamentations 3. Lamentations is a book of outpouring of woe. You think, how long is this going to last? And then in Lamentations 3, Jeremiah makes this statement. Because of the loving devotion of the Lord, we are not consumed. His mercies never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. My brothers and sisters, though things get dark and difficult, our God does not change, and he is not going to change how he operates towards us. We are the people of God with light in our households and with his provision coming through our doorsteps. That's what we need to keep hold of. This is how we overcome, believing these things to be eternally true. So the Romans 8, Paul talks about, you know, we are more than conquerors. That's an interesting word. In Greek, it's hupernikeo, which is a hyper-conqueror. You've heard of a hypermarket? It's even better than a supermarket? In, in, in Russian-speaking areas, they're called hypermarkets. I used to read them in Cyrillic. We are hyper-conquerors through him who loves us. That's not about self-effort. That's about trusting. It's about faith. It's about depending upon him. Not loving our lives, even to the point of death. Those who die for the sake of Jesus are hyper-conquerors. By the way, so when the mark of the beast, you got it, didn't you? It's not about syringes or chips or your technology, whether it's an iPhone or an Android. It's about godless power trying to force us into their ways. What lies ahead for us? Challenging times. But an unchanging and covenant-keeping Christ. We fix our eyes on him. We hold on to him, our treasure which we found in the field, our pearl of greatest price which we went and sold everything to go and get. We trust him for his goodness and provision for all that we need. And we look and hope for the day of his return. Let me go to that scripture again. I want to fix it in your minds. Ready? Arise, shine, for your light has come. Say it with me. And the glory of the Lord rises upon you. For behold, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light, and nangs to the brightness of your dawn. 
As the world grows darker, it's time for the children of God to shine brighter. It's not a matter of, of effort. It's a matter of connection. It's a matter of soaking. It's a matter of being with and receiving from him. We draw into his light. We live by his light, his word and his ways. And that makes us, to quote one of the New Testament scriptures I've avoided quoting, because there were quite a few of them, it makes us lights in dark places. And though some may not wish to have that light at all, some of the people we encounter in those dark places will be drawn to his light through us. May it be so for the glory of his name. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you. You came as the light of the world. And then, with the disciples, you turned that around. You said to them, you're the light of the world. I'm sure they were wondering what he meant by that. But because you live in us, as we live in you, as we draw near to you, as we receive from you, as we obey you and trust you, we become light in the Lord. And we pray that every one of us, Lord, may have personal lives filled with light, home lives filled with light. When we go into the dark places of the workplace, the street, the marketplace, and so on, we will be people who are carrying light. And Lord, if it is the case that the contrast button's being turned up and the darknesses will get darker, Lord, please, please help us to believe you and trust you and to focus on you so that we actually burn brighter for you. For your name's sake we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.